0: Okay, Some weeks ago, we we started our series in the book of Acts, and I asked the question, why did Luke write Acts? And and what has God to say to us through this book? What is the fundamental underlying message of the book of Acts? Well, at the time, I suggested that the, the central theme of Acts seems to be that God was doing something in the world, in Jesus Christ, That could not be stopped by anyone or anything. No barrier, no obstacle could prevent the good news about Jesus from spreading to to every corner of the world. And as we've discovered, we, you and I, are part of that story. The good news about Jesus has spread from one generation to another, from one region to another, from one people group to another. The story of Acts is actually the beginning of our story the story of acts is about the birth of the church and we are the church and this is our story as children of god now last week we heard about how peter and john went up to the temple at three in the afternoon and on the way they encountered a cripple man lying at the gate beautiful he was begging for money of which they had none but what they did have they gave him In the name of Jesus, they commanded him to stand up and walk. And in an instant, he was healed. And this caused no small amount of commotion. People came running from every corner of the temple district to to see what had happened. And Peter then made it very clear to them that this healing had come about not through their own power or godliness, but rather through faith in the name of Jesus. Now, in giving his defense, Peter made some pretty... Volatile statements. I mean, basically, he went gunning straight for the religious leaders, saying, you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? You killed the author of life. What was their reaction to all of this? Did they listen? Did they acknowledge their sin and repent? No, they didn't. The religious leaders and the temple police threw Peter and John into jail for the night. And they probably threw the previously crippled bloke who'd been lying at the gate beautiful. They probably threw him in with them as well. We don't really know, but he seemed to be there the following day. So let's open the word of God to Acts Chapter four, verse one says, The priests and the temple captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Take careful note of that number. 5,000 men. The last number we were given in Acts was 3,000 people in one day. I want you to take note of the fact that the early church was growing at an astounding rate. I mean, this is a mega church, isn't it? In a matter of days. And I want you also to notice that the Jewish religious leaders were greatly disturbed. They were greatly disturbed because the Jesus issue just would not go away. I guess they thought that if they could just kill him, which they had, then everything would settle down and he would quickly be forgotten. Just another try-hard revolutionary. Now it seemed that no matter what they did, this movement kept a profile in the life of Jerusalem. Literally, thousands of people were converting to this sect, and now they had a miraculously healed man standing right there in their midst. I mean, what were they to do? Well, it was getting late, so they decided to throw them into prison for the night. And they would deal with it in the morning. Verse 5 says The next day, elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander and the other men of the high priest's family. Now, Luke records these guys' name names for a reason. They weren't just your average run-of-the-mill priests. These guys were the top dogs. They were the absolute rulers of the temple courts, and essentially of Israel itself. Luke records who was there, because he wants us to know this was a big deal. This was no small matter that they had been hauled before these very men. The other point is that when Peter says, you handed him over to be killed, when he said that to these particular men, he wasn't speaking generally like as though he was saying, you kind of rulers handed him over. No, he was directly accusing them as individuals. He was saying, you Caiaphas... You handed over the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. That these were the actual men who had dealt with Jesus on the night he was betrayed and put him on trial. In verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people." If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how how he was healed then know this you and all the people of Israel it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed he is the stone the builders rejected which has become the capstone Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which which we must be saved. Now, I just want you to notice those words, the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the capstone, that would have been a very familiar phrase to them. You see, for the religious leaders, that, that verse would have held great meaning. Those words are found in Psalm 118. Now, if you read Psalm 118, you'll discover that, that it's a psalm of celebration. I mean, it was sung by the Israelites at national, you know, great national days of thanksgiving. Oh, I guess a little bit like Australia Day in our context. When they sang about the discarded stone that was rejected, that has now become the capstone, the most important stone in the whole construction, the stone that holds it all together. Previously, they were singing about Israel. Okay, this song is Waltzing Matilda. That's what it is to these guys. It's like taking the central kind of theme of this song, which they believed, they always thought, we're Israel, we are the capstone, we're the one that holds it all together. And then... They, Peter basically said to them, Jesus, yes, the Jesus you killed. He is the stone that was rejected, but God has made him the capstone, the stone that holds it all together. Peter wasn't on the defensive, was he? I mean, he was going for these guys. He was on the attack. With God-given power, the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter was challenging the religious know-it-alls at their own game. Remember for a moment who we're talking about here. This is Peter, who only a short while ago was cowering beside a fire outside while Jesus was inside before these same men. This is the same Peter who disowned the Lord when a servant girl asked him if he was with Jesus. Do you see the transformation? Do you see the courage he now exhibits? Something has happened. Something has happened in Peter's life. Something has changed him dramatically. Verse 13. When they saw the courage, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men just like us. I want you to get that. They were the unschooled, Ordinary men. The fact that Peter was a tradey, okay, Peter was a fisherman. What that meant was that by the time he was five, it was starting to look like he wasn't going to cut it. By the time he was 12, it had been officially kind of spoken, the words over his life, you're never going to be a rabbi, mate. Go and help Dad. That's why it was so amazing when Peter said, come follow me. Because no one ever said to someone like Peter, come follow me. I want you to get who this is. This is Peter, the fisherman tradie, who is completely unschooled, who's taking on the guys with the double doctorates. And he's challenging them from the word of God. Do you see the transformation? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows what they've done. They've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his name. These guys with double doctorates were running scared, weren't they? They really were. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows what they've done. They all know it. They know that they've done this outstanding miracle and we can't deny it. You see, again, they couldn't deny the power of what God had done. Only a couple of months before, in a very public way, they had put Jesus to death. And then, a couple of days later, everyone's saying, he's risen. I've seen him. It actually says in Luke's gospel that 450 people or so saw him. It's not as though two people saw him. Hundreds of people saw Jesus alive and all they had to do was show the body. All they've got to do is go, there he is, this rotting corpse. But they couldn't. And now, now they've got a guy who has been at the gate beautiful probably his whole life. The gate beautiful is the big gate. You go into the temple. So everyone is going past this bloke. Everyone who goes to the temple knows the beggar at the gate beautiful. And it's not as though he's a little boy where he wasn't really crippled. He kind of came good. It says he's over 40 years old. He's a guy my age who's never walked and everyone knows him and suddenly he's healed. They must have been tearing their hair out over these guys. Verse 18... Then they called them in again. It was Peter and John. And commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. See, Peter and John couldn't help but speak about what God had done in their lives. Once, not long ago, they had been scared and unsure of their faith in Jesus. Not anymore. Regardless of the threats, regardless of the dangers, they would continue to proclaim proclaim the gospel. And they were going to use these newly discovered gifts of the Spirit to serve the Lord, no matter what. Verse 21, after further threats... I'll let those words sink in. <laughs> These guys, are, they're just getting angry, aren't they, the religious leaders? They're just steaming at them. They're used to saying something and having people quaking in fear. And they've said, do not speak in his name. Do you hear me? And they said, well, sorry, we're going to keep speaking. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them. Because all the people were praising God for what had happened. It's a bit like Jesus, isn't it? We've got to get him in the dead of night because everyone is going to riot. They think he's a prophet. For the man who was miraculously healed was over forty years old. The religious leaders, though being highly educated and trained in understanding the scriptures had failed to see God in their midst. You know, we can do the same thing. We can fail to see what God is doing in our midst. These guys were highly trained. They knew the scriptures inside out. God appeared to them in flesh. The word of God, they studied the word of God, the word of God, who they knew off by heart, appeared to them in flesh and blood and they missed it. In fact, they killed him. See, all they could do was focus on themselves. All they could see what was happening to their power and their influence in Israel. God was doing the most awesome thing in their midst, the birth of the church, and they were missing it. God was setting the captives free. Not just a crippled man at the gate, beautiful. Thousands of people were finding forgiveness and hope and new life in Jesus. Israel were God's chosen people. They were his chosen instrument to bring blessing to the whole world. And ultimately they did through Jesus. But these men, these leaders of Israel, couldn't see what God was doing because they were afraid of what it might mean for them personally. See, not so for Peter and John. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with courage. So they threatened them. And because they are afraid to punish them, they let them go. Verse 23 says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of, the whole, of your holy servant, Jesus. So Peter and John are released. They go straight to their mates. They go straight to the church, to their people, and they told them everything that had happened. You see what they did? first thing they did was they raised their voices together in prayer. Now, it's interesting that in their prayer, they refer to King David, and very specifically to Psalm 2. You see, in the consciousness of Israel, David was their greatest hero. I mean, he was, after all, a man after God's own heart. And it was this guy, David, who, as a shepherd boy, took on... The giant Philistine Goliath, who was disrespecting Israel and disrespecting their God, let all the world know. Day after day, he came out to them and said, Come on, fight me. Or otherwise, let all the world know there is no God in Israel. And the shepherd boy David says, Whoa, I am going to get you, man, in the name of God. And he goes stomping down and he does. It was David who courageously stood in God's strength against all of the surrounding nations who eventually brought Israel into a period of peace and prosperity. David was the anointed one of Israel, their king, and in their understanding, the son of God. You see, in Old Testament thought, the son of God was the king of Israel. The king of Israel was the son of God, the one who stood between God and his people. And that's why Psalm 2 was was always used at the coronation of the next king. These words they prayed, Psalm 2, was always used at the coronation to remind the king, this is who you are. This is who you are. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. You stand between us and God. You know what? The nations raged against David. David. And they plotted against him in vain. The kings of the earth took their stand against Yahweh and his anointed one, David, in vain. And now in Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of that psalm has come to pass. The ultimate king of Israel, the one true son of God, the ultimate representative of God's people, standing between God and humanity, has come in the person of Jesus. And if you go to the very last page of the Bible, amongst the very last sentences where we hear Jesus quoted, even Jesus from heaven says he makes reference to this. When he identifies himself, when Jesus, son of God, sitting at the right hand of God, identifies himself. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. It's amazing, isn't it? But you've got to see that. You've got to see that in Revelation, Jesus says, I am the root of David and I am his offspring. In other words, everything is promised. The anointed one, David, is come, has come to fulfillment in me. I'm the ultimate Israelite. I'm the only one who did what Israel was called to do. And that's why he sits at the right hand of the Father, fully human, fully God. That's why they referred. They needed, they needed this kind of courage. You see, that's why they prayed. That's why they prayed about David. That's why they remembered Psalm 2, because they needed courage. The religious leaders had threatened them says, verse 21, after further threats, they let them go. And just remember this. These were the actual men who decided that the solution to the Jesus issue was murder. Th- these were the men. When Peter and John are standing before them and they threaten them further, they knew that their friend Jesus had been put to death because these guys said to the Romans, crucify him. They needed courage. David was the national champion. He embodied courage based not on his own strength, but on God's strength alone. Think about David standing against Goliath, a young boy without military training or weapons, standing defiantly before the giant. The Philistine trained in battle since his youth, yet standing within the sure knowledge that God was with him. David took him on. In trusting so completely in God, David not only found the courage to stand before Goliath, but David won a victory against all odds. These guys, Peter and John, they needed that kind of courage. Now, verse 29 Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's what they prayed for. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What were they asking for? First thing they asked for was this. They asked that God would hear the threats made against them and to enable them to speak his word with great boldness in the face of those threats. They were scared. They were. They had to be scared. It would be stupid to think they weren't scared. They were scared. And I guess they thought crucifixion was highly likely. The thing is, they didn't back down. They didn't heed the warning to be quiet. Rather, they asked for courage. Now, I want you to notice the second thing they asked God for. Verse 30, they prayed, Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They knew that the miraculous healing of the crippled guy at the gate beautiful was the catalyst for all of this. And they knew the religious leaders were stopped in their tracks by the startling reality of this healing right there in the midst. They knew that this is where it started and they were calling out, "God, do more of this stuff. It's powerful." What do you think would have happened to the church if that morning Peter and John had gone home and said, look, things are pretty hot at the moment. It's just too scary. It's too dangerous. These are the very men who killed Jesus. We, look, the wise thing to do would be to back down. We, we, we had to go into hiding. Come on, guys. It's the only sensible, wise thing to do. What do you think would have happened to the the church if Peter and John had said that? I know the Sunday school answer is, God would have found someone else. I can't help thinking, though, that when Jesus hung on the cross, it was real. And he was thinking to himself, when the father disappeared, (laughs) turned his face away, Lord, I hope this is going to be enough. I hope that love really will succeed here. I think it was real. I think it was real risk. God is authentic, He really risks. This was a pivotal moment for the early church. And thank God they asked for courage. I want to ask you this morning. Does that simple prayer of the early church have any relevance for you today? I mean, and I want to ask you do we, Lakes Baptist Church, do we want to be a growing church? Because our vision statement says we do. Do we want to be a real and relevant, life giving model of Christ empowered by the Spirit? to free and transform and to impassion lives. Do we want to be that kind of church? You see, that's what the early church was doing. They were growing at an astounding rate. They were freeing people from bondage, both physically and spiritually and emotionally. They were impassioning lives that would change the world forever. They were doing it because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who dwells within those who are in Christ. At that level, nothing has changed. We're dealing with the same God here. We're dealing with the same King, Jesus. Nothing has changed. Do we want to be that kind of church? I want you to notice the two things they asked God for in the face of persecution. The first was courage, to speak the word of God boldly. Courage to preach the gospel in the face of great danger. You know, I'm not talking about speaking the gospel when you know, your mates might think you're a bit of a loser. I'm talking about speaking the gospel when it was going to cost you everything. You know, Miriam and are kind of open doors stuff. We're preaching the gospel means I might get hung. That's what the death sentence was. That's what it meant for those girls. The second thing is miracles. They wanted to see the power of God in their midst. They wanted to see miracles done in the name of Jesus. They longed for God to rock their world. They longed for God to show up, and he did. And have a look at what happened. Verse, look, this is verse 31. After they prayed... The place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Sorry, I didn't put the slide up for that. So here's the challenge for us today. What are you asking God for? What are we asking God for? Do we really want to see the power of God unleashed in this place? Do we really want to see the the power of God manifest, evidently, evident, you know, manifestly evident amongst us? I have to say that over the years, I think earlier on, you know, when I was twenty. I really long to see miracles all the time. I just seem to believe that they were going to happen. But I have to confess to you, it is jolly disappointing. It is to pray for people over and over again, and I don't see the the miracle happening. It happens too often. I've buried too many friends that I prayed for and they didn't get better and they died. I'm not saying this is easy, but I do. I want to be the kind of person who longs to see miracles happen. I want to long to see people healed of physical and emotional wounds. And I want to see the miracle of transformation happening in people's lives as they come into contact with the word of God and as they're introduced to the Saviour, and as they are loved by his people. But I think as I'm getting older, what I'm realising is that as a young man, my idea of what healing was was so limited. And as I've got older, I've thought, ah, as the years go by, you think, I can see the healing, the real healing, that's happening here. Because... You know, often there's things that happen that, that at the time you think it's going to go this way. Like when I think about my dad died about three and a half years ago. And honestly, I, it was just such a shock. Dad just died, bam, like that. There was no kind of warning. And I really thought, how is my mum going to cope? Really, how is mum going to cope with this? And to be honest, I thought she won't cope. Mum won't cope. This is going to be an unholy mess. And you know, at this point, I really felt like God, because Mum wasn't coping in the first weeks, which is understandable. You know, They've been married since, they were together since I was 17. Dad, what died when he was 71? It's <laughs> a lot of years together, isn't it? But I felt like God said to me, "Mum's been given a chance." to rebuild and restore her relationship with her boys, its just my brother and I. And you know, now I look back over three and a half years, and the way mum has coped with this terrible tragedy, mum is a different person, she is. And she has grown so much in her own life, spiritually and emotionally and relationally and my relationship with mum now is just, I'd have to say, healed, transformed, miraculously. I never would have thought it would have happened. And now, funnily enough, I say, thank God you took dad at 71, which is a bizarre thing to say because I miss him heaps. <laughs> you know, I'm serious. It's, it's one of those things where I think, gee, I really miss dad and I wish that, that hadn't happened. And, Surely someone could have healed, you know, his heart. But then I look back with a bit more time and I think, oh, no, Dad's okay. And this life will go like that and then we'll be together and this wonderful healing has happened. So maybe when I look at these things now and I hear people like Eugene Peterson who who wrote the Message Translation, um, some of you may know him, but when he talks about 40 years of pastoral ministry and he says, oh, in the first 20 years or so, I got very impatient with what God was doing. I wanted God to heal people and transform them much more rapidly. But he said, I now realise that, no, it's the long obedience in the same direction where God brings miraculous healing, but often it happens over a far greater period of time. And we need to hang in there, continuing to pray for people. But let me ask you, who are the people who threaten and scare you? Who are you praying for, the courage to share the gospel with? Is there anyone whom you are praying into the kingdom right now? I've said, give me a list. Who are they? Is there anyone? It's a good question, isn't it, for followers of Jesus, particularly if you take... You know, in mind the fact that we are called to go into all the world and make disciples who's on your list and are you praying this prayer almighty god break into that person's life come crashing in like you did with that cripple at the gate beautiful he was not when he got up in the morning he was not expecting that that day he would be healed and would be walking and jumping and praising god Give me the courage to speak the gospel into their life. Do something amazing in their life. Pour out your power on them in the name of Jesus. Work a miracle in them. Is that a prayer you pray often? Because that seems to be the kind of prayer the early church just fell into when trouble came. And as I've just said to you, I find that prayer hard. And I probably don't pray it often enough. See, too often I see people where they're at now. And I'm actually intimidated by their lostness, by their disinterest in the things of God. And I often fail to see them as God sees them. I fail to see who they could be forgiven, transformed, renewed in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm anxious and I'm worried about the irrelevance of the church. Not just this church, but the church globally. As we just try to work out how to be the people of God in a post-Christendom world. Believe me, in so many ways, what we offer the world is absolutely irrelevant and powerless. Because what we offer them is nothing more than we can do in our own strength. The truth is, the world needs God. The early church grew because they knew they could only fulfill the Great Commission in the power of God. And they knew they needed courage and they needed the power of God to be poured out in miracles and signs and wonders. And we often ask for neither. We don't need courage because we don't place ourselves in danger and we don't ask for miraculous signs and wonders because we don't really believe God will move. Let me ask you: When was the last time you put it out there on the line? When was the last time you risked reputation, social standing, financial status, or security for the sake of the gospel? When was the last time you followed the Lord's leading until it hurt, or you were a genuine risk? When was the last time that you needed to say, "God, stand me, stand with me, as you stood with David"? Give me the courage to be your servant in this situation. Give me the strength to stand because I just can't do this on my own. And when was the last time you asked God to do something absolutely outrageous? Something that only God could do. I mean, this is a really challenging passage of scripture. This is not just a historic account of a series of events that happened shortly after Pentecost. This story is there in Acts for a reason and I, need, I believe that we need to take heed of its message. So what are you scared of? So, What are you scared of? Maybe you're scared of teaching a Sunday school <coughs> or school scripture class. A lot of people like that. Maybe you're scared of to put your hand up for a certain ministry that you feel that God is calling you to. You just don't know what it's going to really cost you. Maybe you're scared to put God to the test. It's the only time in the Bible that God says put God to the test by trusting him with your finances. Maybe you're scared to say to your boss, no, I am not going to work all those hours of overtime because it is hurting my marriage, my family, I walk with God. Maybe you're scared to just say, I am not going to work here in this job anymore. Maybe you're scared to say, what I do here day after day, the kind of stuff I do that no one else really knows what I do, but I know what I do and my boss knows what I do, and the kind of stuff I do here day after day is just not honouring to God, and I'm going to ask God for another job and then have the courage to walk away from that job. Believe me, that is a hard decision. And if you think I'm standing up here saying that to you without ever having done it, think again. Louise and I, on more than one occasion, have prayed that prayer and walked away And let me tell you, it will cost you probably a lot more than you realise. It may cost you everything you've got. (laughs) I'm not saying that lightly, okay? (laughs) But I'm still saying it. Because I think it's a prayer that we sometimes need to pray. Maybe you're just scared to put God first in your life. What if he doesn't come through for me? What are you scared of? What are you scared of? I just want to finish by saying God calls us to be people of courage. See, people who are filled with courage because of who God is. Not because of who we are, but rather because of who God is. People who are filled with courage... Because we know that greater is he that is with us than those who are against us. Scripture calls us to be people of courage. People who ask God that God would open the way for us to preach the gospel boldly in a world that does not want to hear. But who so desperately need to hear. That's true, isn't it? And can I suggest that we would be people who courageously ask that God would work powerful miracles through us to bless our community. Let's pray. Living God, once again, your word kind of throws up stuff and brings us into a a tumultuous time because it challenges us Lord this morning because of who you are not because of who we are but because of who you are we ask for courage Courage to be the people you call us to be and to do that which you call us to do. And Lord, we would boldly, boldly ask for a miraculous change in people's lives. Whether that be the healing of a a physical illness or an addiction or just really Dysfunctional, destructive behaviour that seems to be just kind of system, systemic in family systems. Lord, we would pray boldly that you would show up and you would do things that are just unheard of in our midst. Unexpected, like the cripple at the gate beautiful. That we would be telling stories of Your greatness. And Lord, I pray, in praying that, Lord, I ask that you would deal with our doubt. You would help us in the midst of our unbelief. That you would give us a surety and a knowledge that only comes from you. That you would anoint us in the same way that you anointed that shepherd boy, David. And you filled him with your spirit. And he had such great courage. Bless your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.